you turn on the news and no one's really talking about municipal bonds, right? Welcome to Mitten Money, delivering insights from Michigan-based business leaders, big and small. William Zank, host of Mitten Money at TriStar Trust, loves nothing more than creating this masterclass so that you can get insight to guide your leadership journey in just under 30 minutes. Subscribe today and connect with William at mittenmoney.com. What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another great episode of Mitt Money. I am happy to be back from paternity leave and bring you yet another great wide-ranging conversation today. 2023 has been a pretty interesting year for many reasons. One that's close to my heart, though, is the rise that we've seen in interest rates. This, as you can imagine, has led to an increase in the interest that people have in bonds. Sorry, I had to put at least one dad joke in there. In all seriousness, we've received a few questions about bonds from our listeners. So we invited Amy Korch on the podcast to chat with us today about fixed income. Amy is currently the Director of Relationship Management at Breckenridge Capital Advisors and brings a wealth of experience within the field. So if you ever wondered, what is a bond? Why are they important? Or anything in between, then this is certainly an episode that you don't want to miss. So welcome, Amy, to Mitt Money. So Amy, thank you for coming on today. You have quite the educational background with a degree from Tulane and an MBA from the Johnson School at Cornell. So it sounds like you could have honestly had the opportunity to go anywhere in finance and investing. And so what attracted you to fixed income and then later working with Breckenridge? So I would say that I didn't graduate from Tulane or Cornell with the goal of working in fixed income. My goal really when I was at both schools was to get a degree in finance and I wanted to work with people. I wanted to work with an investors. So I'm more of a people person. I'm a talker. So when I was entering the working world and then coming back into the working world after my MBA, I really wanted to focus on being with investors, working with them. And I particularly like the asset management space. And so I've luckily been able to accomplish that. So throughout my almost two decades, which is crazy to think about, two decades of work experience, I have worked with many different types of investors. So individual investors, your more retail type, high net worth, ultra high net worth, family office, and then to the traditional type of institutional clients. And I've actually worked across a number of different asset classes. So fixed income, public equities, and alternatives broadly, private equity, real estate, private credit. The one thing I'd say about fixed income, I sort of backed into it, but I would say that I love fixed income. And the reason why I love fixed income is because in my opinion, it really is the most interesting. And some people are thinking like, oh, that's crazy, right? It's fixed income. It's boring, right? And <laughs> But there are just so many different ways in which the financial system can create debt and so many different ways that investors can invest in debt, right? And so I think that's what makes it really interesting. And, and also, in my view, fixed income or the debt markets, I might call it the debt markets throughout this podcast, because we're talking about fixed income in this podcast. But the debt markets, in my view, are also really the basis of the economy, right? Debt fuels the economy and allows people to do what they do. So you buy a house. Many times people need a mortgage. That's a form of debt. You've accumulated debt. And then that type of debt can be invested in in the financial markets via a mortgage-backed security. So it really fuels the economy and, and helps set what trajectory it's going to be on or not be on. And then just to address your question on what attracted me to Breckenridge, and just put it very simply, it's a big enough firm, but it's a small enough firm. So when I say it's big enough, it's well-known in the industry, in the fixed income space. 
It has strong acumen across its investment professionals, a lot of industry experience, and it has a differentiated and large client base. So from those perspectives, it's big enough, but at the same time, it's small enough. And so what I mean by that is I know everyone who works here, I'm easily able to partner with different teams at the organization to meet client needs first and foremost. And I also, as an individual, feel like I can affect some sort of change either within or outside of the organization. And it's really important for me to be able to deliver on my job, which is to ultimately support the client base and do that seamlessly. And also important for me to be able to raise my hand and do more at an organization. And finally, just to add a little bit more about why I like Breckenridge. Breckenridge does give back to the community, which I know all organizations say they get back to the community, but I really feel like Breckenridge does it well and is tried and true to that focus. We do partner with a lot of service organizations throughout the U.S. with a specific focus on local Massachusetts organizations. We do a lot more with internship program. Even since I've been here, we've really grown that out. For example, we partner with Girls Who Invest, which is near and dear to my heart as a woman in the financial services industry. And we have interns and had, I believe it was two interns this year from that organization. So really appreciate what Breckenridge does on that front. Absolutely. No, and all those different things sound great. It makes it sound like a great organization. I know that for the past couple of years that I've been interacting with Breckenridge from a TriStar perspective. You guys have always been a super class act and happy to have you on and be talking about fixed income today. And so in your humble opinion, what was interesting from your answer is that sometimes fixed income can get that boring rap, which is unfortunate, but why do you think it gets the boring rap? Well, (laughs) so if you turn on the TV, right? And whatever you go to, right? CNBC, Bloomberg, Fox Business, whatever your show du jour is, you hear a lot about public equities, about stocks. You don't tend to hear a lot about fixed income. Maybe U.S. Treasury market, but really just the focus is not on fixed income. And so I think it just is not front of mind for many individuals. I'd also say too that bonds are, the mechanics of them are less straightforward. So if I think about just a public stock, you buy the stock, price goes up, you make money. Price goes down, you lose money. It's very simple. In bond world, when you're looking at bond math, I mean, the price of a bond goes up, you make money. But at the same set of the equation, if you invest in a bond when it's got a higher price, your yield is lower because bond prices move inversely with yields. And then your income stream can be lower. That's not really intuitive, right? So I think the math behind bonds is more complicated. And I think that can turn people off from the asset class. And then it just sort of gets that boring rap. And then finally, I would just say that historically speaking, bonds, when compared to public equities, alternatives like private equity, real estate, they generally have lower returns historically. So there's just this less excitement about, even though it's a good asset class and a stable asset class, generally, it's no better, no worse than any other asset class. I think it makes it less exciting because there's just generally less return potential. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. And I think for a lot of people too, people may just associate, okay, well, there's individual bonds out there. They go up, they go down. And maybe that was their first experience with investing. Someone gave them a good old savings bonds. Maybe they're clipping the coupons, depending on how old they might be. And that might be their first overall experience with it too. So I appreciate going into depth with that. And so from a broad perspective now, shifting a little bit, 
When would it make sense for someone to look at individual bonds first investing in a bond or a bond mutual fund or ETF? Yeah. So I think owning individual bonds really is of interest to investors who have unique investment guidelines. They want to have customizations around their portfolios or there's other considerations that can't really be solved for by a mutual fund or an exchange traded fund, an ETF. With a mutual fund or an ETF, I mean, what you see is what you get. You just buy shares of that and you get whatever is in that mutual fund or ETF. With a separate account, which is the vehicle that we refer to that you buy individual bonds in, you are able to have more uh, customization around what is actually going into that portfolio. I think also, too, if you are an investor who's really income focused and wants to be able to have predictability around the cash flows that you're getting from your bond portfolio, owning the individual bonds will support that more so than a mutual fund or ETF because mutual funds and ETFs, I mean, you're buying shares and there's investors going in and out, contributing and and taking out money on a daily basis. So that's going to impact what you're owning and then it's going to impact what your income stream is, your cash flow. So you can't really predict and you can't have certainty as to what that investment is going to produce over a month, year, five years, right? So having more predictability around the income and what you're going to see in the future is really, in my view, what people tend to like in a separate account format where they're buying their own individual bonds. And then I would say a lot of what Breckenridge does is around municipal bonds, tax-exempt municipal bonds. So I'm going to focus on just one more point there. On the municipal side, obviously with them being tax-exempt, in many instances, there's interest by individuals to invest in that specific part of the fixed income market because there's tax efficiency. And when you invest in individual bonds, the individual tax-exempt municipal bonds, you can get more exacting with that tax efficiency. So say if you're a Michigan resident, which is obviously uh, Will where you live, or if you're a Massachusetts resident where I live in Massachusetts, though I'm not a Red Sox fan, (laughs) just had to throw that in there, you can actually invest in bonds more so in that state, which will help create more tax-exempt income for you. That's a perfect answer. And it's interesting you mentioned the municipal bond portion because I feel like a lot of people overlook the benefits that they offer. If it's a local project, you can go help support whether it's a local school raising money or a local town or another part of the municipality raising money. But then also that tax exempt income is really important for a lot of people. And so in your opinion, why do you think they're overlooked by investors? Do you think people may not know the options that are out there? Well, I think it goes back to the point that I made before, which is just you turn on the news and no one's really talking about municipal bonds, right? I mean, and in my experience, municipal bonds seem to only come up when there's some sort of dramatic event or crisis, right? Like Detroit going bankrupt in 2013 or COVID 2020, March 2020, when everyone was stuck at home, right? And people were worried about municipal bonds, whether it was mass transit or, or just municipalities, a city or a state or a town being able to exist with people stuck at home, right? So I just feel like it's overlooked because, again, there's not a lot of attention to it. I also think, too, with tax-exempt municipal bonds that I think they just have less appeal to the broader universe of investors. So if you think about it, obviously, I talked about the tax exemption piece, and that's really of interest to 
individual investors, retail investors, high net worth investors. You're not going to see really more broad-based institutional types of investors interested in tax-exempt municipal bonds for tax-exempt income. Because if you think about it, a pension, like a state pension, that's a tax-exempt entity, right? So they're not going to derive that tax-exempt benefit like an individual would, right? The other thing too is foreign investors, similar to institutional investors in the US, they don't get any tax benefit from investing in a tax-exempt municipal bond. So I think just given the fact that there's less appeal, it's less attractive for the broad universe of investors means it just doesn't get as much interest or attention. Now, when he said interest, is that a pun or is that just a play on words? No, it's neither. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not clever (laughs) enough for that. (laughs) Had to ask the question nonetheless. I appreciate you mentioning that, Amy. And so another area that people should definitely be aware of are junk bonds. Now, I understand that your firm likes to stay on the higher side of the quality spectrum, which is obviously a good thing. But why should someone be cautious while investing within those types of junk companies? I mean, they could see one bond at one corporation having a 3 or 4% interest rate, but I see another bond down the street. Oh, that's yielding 7 8 9%. You know, why wouldn't I want to have an interest rate that's twice as much as the other comparable bonds? Yeah. So just to reiterate what you said, Breckenridge does not invest in junk bonds, high yield bonds, whatever you want to call them. We do very much keep up in quality and invest only in investment grade bonds. But what I will say is that high yield bonds may or may not make sense, right? I mean, it really is going to depend on an investor's profile and risk appetite. And What I have found is that people generally turn to high yield bonds because of that higher yield element, which you just referenced, right? And essentially, a high yield bond has that higher yield because if you're going to invest in something that's riskier, you need to be compensated for that risk, right? So that's why you're going to see a high yield bond have more elevated yields. So why do they have more elevated yields? Why are they more risky than, say, their investment-grade counterparts. So first off, these companies are rated lower by credit rating agencies like S&P and Moody's because there's more risk to their balance sheets. Their balance sheets are not as strong. So that could potentially lead to a greater probability of default. And that's not to say that every high-yield bond is going to default, but it's just because there's less strength from a financial perspective, the ability to default is greater. It's just straight statistics probability. So that's one thing that, yes, you're going to get potentially a higher yield, but you are taking on that greater risk of potential default. The other thing to be mindful of with high-yield bonds is that they tend to be less liquid. And when I say less liquid, that means that if you were going to try to go out and sell them in the market, it may be more difficult to sell them. So we call that liquidity. Something that's more liquid would be very easy to sell in the market. Something that's less liquid would be more difficult and you would likely have to sell at an even lower price than you would like to. So there is a liquidity element to high yield bonds that you need to, as an investor, be aware of and comfortable with. And the liquidity considerations can get more heightened in more stressed market periods. So if I reflect on, say, March 2020, which was the depths of COVID in the US, fixed income markets were less liquid. It was harder to sell bonds. And in the lower quality you were at that time, in, say, high yield versus investment grade, it was more difficult to sell high yield than it was investment grade. And the other thing I would say is just because of the risk profile that I described, 
as well as the liquidity considerations, you're going to tend to see more volatility in returns for high-yield bonds, just less consistent return streams. Sure. I could definitely see that. That definitely makes a lot of sense. And what was interesting is that you mentioned for high yield, it can definitely make sense, but given an investor's profile. And so considering yourself as a, you work directly with the bond shop, I actually know for a fact you cover a lot of different bond subcategories, such as municipal bonds, corporate bonds, government bonds. Would investors be better off just investing in one segment or possibly multiple segments within fixed income? I'll give an answer, but it's a difficult one to have certainty in because I do think that whether a client invests in one segment or multiple segments really comes down to what the client objectives are and what's going on in their overall portfolio. So there's really no one size fits all as to whether an investor should do one segment within fixed income or invest across multiple segments. The one thing I will say, which I think is applicable broadly to investors, is that generally speaking, if you are investing in more sectors, segments within the fixed income asset class, you're getting more diversification, which is generally thought to be beneficial, right? Because you're not putting all of your eggs in one basket, different sectors within fixed income, say corporates, US treasuries might perform differently at different times. So that might offset each other or not. So having diversification is generally thought of a good thing. So from just a general regard, it is good to have a multi-sector approach to fixed income. But again, whether it's appropriate or not, or better or worse, it's really at the end of the day, just going to come down to the end client and what their objectives are. Sure. I can certainly see that. And so now transitioning over to the fun part of the interview, not to say that the other questions aren't fun, but the lightning round of questions. So Amy, what would you say is your most important daily habit? So most important daily habit should probably be exercising. That does not happen every day. It happens maybe every other day or every other two days. But if I had to think about the one thing that I do do quite consistently on a daily basis is that before I go to work, and this is going to sound silly because I do actually come into the office more than I stay at home. I straighten up the house every morning before I go to work. Like I'm a little bit of a neat freak, but I like everything just sort of being set and done, straightened up before I go to the office. Then I come back and I have a clearer head. There's less work that I need to do when I get home from just a housekeeping perspective. And I can just sort of wind down and then focus on the family. So I guess that would be my one daily habit. I don't know if that really classifies as a daily habit or just, I don't know, but I throw it out there. I think it qualifies to come home to a clean house too and not have those things as you go home and you're trying to spend time with family, trying to also help get kids down too for bedtime. One less thing to go do. So I would certainly say that qualifies. (laughs) What would you say is your favorite TV or streaming show you're currently watching or have recently? Okay. So I actually have given up. Well, not fully given up, but I am taking a break from binge watching any series throughout the summer. I just got a little bad during the winter. So I decided no TV or minimal TV. So there's not anything that I'm watching or have watched in the last couple of months. So what I am doing though, is I'm doing a lot more reading. So I started out at the beginning of the year saying that I was going to read one book a month. And I probably didn't start doing that till more so May. So the one book that I'm reading 
now in August is called the Winter Army. So it's about the 10th Mountain Division, which is the infantry unit that was fighting in the Alps during World War II. So I would say about 75% of what I read is history or is biographical in nature. And for me, it's just, I like learning about the past. I like history. I like learning about what we as humans are possible of, whether it's good or bad. And then I think history is actually a good guide of how we can persevere and address certain challenges in our day-to-day life. I could certainly see that. Reading is definitely a big hobby of mine as well. It's a lot of fun being able to go read into historical events. And two books I have to ask if you've read. So first off, have you read The Bond King by Mary Childs? I have not actually read that. So no. Definitely, definitely a must read for all of fixed income. And then from a history book, have you read or ever heard of Shadow Divers? Yes, but I've not read it. Okay, no, I was just going to say that is between finance and any other books is by far my most favorite book ever read on World War II. Highly, highly recommend. But what was the name of the book you just mentioned? With the oh, Mountain? it's The Winter Army. Okay, yeah, I've heard great things about that book. And so definitely on a good path. And so I can definitely see that. Now, last question for you with the lightning round. If you could remember for just one thing, what would it be? I'd have to say for having conviction. So just confidence in myself, believing in myself, and not compromising what you think is right, your views or your values. Amazing. So for those people, Amy, who want to learn more about yourself or Breckenridge, what are some good resources for the listeners out there? Yeah, so I would say definitely check out our firm's website. It's simply www.breckenridge.com. And it's actually spelled B-R-E-C-K-I-N. R-I-D-G-E. So a a little bit different. It's not the same spelling as a ski area in Colorado. So there's a lot of good material there. If you go to the insights tab in particular, which is at the top of the website, you can get our monthly market commentary, our latest research pieces on different trends that we're seeing in the market, and any information on our strategies. And you can go to the bios tab if you want to look and see who works here and see my picture. It's a little outdated. And then I would also say too that you may see from time to time our portfolio managers or research analysts or traders quoted in certain publications. I know we've appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, Bomb Buyer. So that's another way to get our latest thinking as well. Well, perfect. Thank you, Amy, for coming on. And thank you, everyone, for listening to another great episode of Mitt Money. Please don't forget to follow our podcast so you don't miss when new episodes drop. Thanks, Amy. Thank you. Enjoying being here. You've been listening to Mitt and Money sponsored by TriStar Trust. Subscribe to the podcast and learn more about how William and the TriStar Trust team can guide your small business at tristartrust.com.